Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Corey Rosen, and you're listening to The Story Podcast. Today, I have on a super awesome guest, but before we get into that, I have some merchandise. If you would really like to support this podcast, please be sure to get, go check out the store on facebook.com forward slash the story Corey Rosen. We have stickers, and we have shirts and hoodies with the uh, with the logo on the front, and the first 50 guests on the back. Today, I have on Mr. Chris Keeney. Originally from Mid-State, Virginia, Chris has lived in Lancaster for most of his life. He earned a BM from Lebanon Valley College as a music and recording major and then jumped right into teaching and performing. Over the past 18 years, Chris has taught many hundreds of guitar students, both collegiately and through private lessons. At his height, he was teaching approximately 70 private students a week. Though he doesn't have much time for independent teaching these days, he does keep a few individual students, but most of his teaching time is devoted to the collegiate world. He is currently the head. Uh, he's a little bit. He is currently head of the guitar program at Lancaster Bible College and will be taking over the program at Franklin and Marshall College in the fall of 2022. Previously, he ran a guitar program at Albright College from 2005 to 2010. And as a player, Chris has been fortunate to have had a wide range of gigging and touring opportunities. Over the years, he's played with many jazz and rock groups, toured in extreme metal bands, played in regional orchestras, and joined the backing bands for national and international acts. Since 2010, Chris has been heavily, heavily involved in the theater and uh, in Lancaster, beginning at American Music Theater and then branching out into many others. He's been involved with various performance venues and theater companies for the past 12 years. He's worked with The Fulton, AMT, Prima, Servant Stage, and others. And since mid-2017, Chris has been the first call guitarist at the Fulton Theater, which is current and is currently playing for the band Jersey Boys. Also since then, Chris has been the head of worship and technology at St. James Episcopal Church in downtown Lancaster. He runs all contemporary music, which includes the well-known Saturday night secular, uh, secular music mass that St. James has run for years while also running all streaming, video, and technology. In addition, he plays Oud for contemplative services and events, including the popular First Friday Compline. Previously, Chris was the band director and recording engineer for Victory Church of Lancaster for over 15 years. In addition to his music work, Chris is also a mixing and mastering engineer for Immersive Media Music Group. Sorry, Immersive Music Media Group. Wait, did I say that correctly? I did say that correctly. Okay. Uh, which is an immersive sound studio and post-production house in Lancaster. When not working, Chris enjoys spending his time with his wife and kids. Chris, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm happy to not be working for a few minutes, so this is fun. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem, man. So tell me, as a, uh, when did your journey in the music begin? What inspired it? Was it a record? Was it an album? Was it the old guitar that you had in the house, or what was it? Uh, my parents were musicians, um, hobbyist musicians, but they had played for their whole lives, and we just grew up with it, listening to it. Uh, we used to sing for things as a family. Um, my Both of my parents play some piano, so we were always involved in things with that. Um, guitar was more, I think I was just inspired by, I heard when I was young, heard some older kids playing and you know, thought it was the coolest thing ever, you know, at, at 10 or 11 years old, that's often how it works. Um, and then kind of went looking for some things. And once I heard certain uh, artists or certain songs, I think that it just kind of 
bit me and I just had to go after it. So I, I don't have an isolated thing I can point to, but um, just growing up kind of saturated with music, it was a natural thing. And I played some other things before guitar, but caught guitar at 14 and that was it. So at what point did you start uh, going out and performing or? A very early. Uh, I, I was playing for open mics and things with friends uh, almost immediately, like really too early probably. But um, I, I was pretty comfortable on stage and I had done some, some playing in orchestras and things because I was playing uh, viola when I was a young kid. Wow. Um, so it was kind of string instrument overlap I guess but um, I was pretty comfortable being up there and I was singing and so it was just kind of like an outlet to get in front of people um, at the time and so I started doing that very early and then was able to within I don't know if it was a year or 18 months uh, started a band with some friends and, and that just kind of became a, a consistent thing then from there on out. That's awesome. What was it like yeah. to create a band at such a young age and having to reach out to venues for different gigs? Well, I was um, a number of years younger than the guys I was playing with, and they had been in some already established bands. I got pulled into kind of a new project with them, and so they were doing a lot of that. Mm. So um, I was writing most of the stuff, and I was singing everything and playing. I was the only guitarist. Um, but I wasn't having to do some of the other legwork. So I was like, let them do it. They know these people and don't mind making the phone call and I'll just kind of, you know, drag the band through the shows. But um, that made it a little bit easier for me to kind of figure some things out. But then when I had to start doing my own calling later on, it, I didn't have much to pull from and that was not my favorite thing. So I had mm. to kind of get over that eventually. Uh, you probably learned a lot through them as well, being older. Uh, definitely, and uh, even even in some small ways about what does it look like to be professional, um, having regular rehearsals where we're actually working through things in, in kind of like talking. a yeah functional yeah. way. Um, that was helpful because they all of us were busy, but they were busy and impatient. So <laughs> that made it easier for me to kind of stay dialed in and I think that started me off well that way that's great so uh did that how long did that band last for you know it was probably a couple years I kind of naturally disintegrated when those guys got out of high school and and kind of everyone went their separate ways um and then I was playing with other friends already at that point and uh jumping around to different things although doing a lot of solo playing um, at that point uh, and I had gotten into one of, one of the big influences that I didn't mention earlier that kind of inspired me as a performer was uh, Michael Hedges who's mm. a um, you know percussive fingerstyle guitar player um, from uh, the Wyndham Hill world if people are familiar with that and uh, I was playing his stuff young like 14 15 um, which was significantly more difficult and interesting than the electric guitar stuff that I was doing around right. that time. Um, and and I was doing it at the level I could do it, but that was at a time when you just weren't seeing it. There's, there's so many people around here now that um, just with the, you know, on the interwebs and, and Instagram and whatever, you're seeing these people being exposed to that stuff much earlier and 
able to work things out in a different way. And um, I was kind of at the in the early part of some of that where I had to kind of figure more of it out on my own, but I still had more opportunities than someone who would have been 10 years older than me. So um, that kind of sucked me in and I really like, it was more physical. It's a lot of like percussion, slapping the guitar and all, all these different things. It's very impressive um, to watch. Yeah, it's, and, and fun to do. Oh yeah. And so I, that I think pushed me to get in front of people. So when I wasn't doing my rock band stuff, I was generally playing this, you know, percussive fingerstyle stuff. So um, pretty uh, disparate sort of, um, you know, wide breadth of, of interests and things that I was doing. But it made it easy to kind of get right back out and be doing things even if I'm not playing with other people at that time. Yeah, and it, it definitely points for uniqueness, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm sure you blew people's minds when, when they saw what you were doing because – uh, for those who don't know, you, you use the entire instrument or entire entire body for of the guitar to make all these percussive sounds and n- unique in different ways that most people don't ever. And it's so if you haven't checked it or seen it, you should definitely uh, look up some videos on it. It is wild. Some of the stuff that people can do. Yeah, there's some pretty impressive players out there now, um, and some lean a little more the. Uh, more traditional finger style direction and some are more percussive but uh, some pretty incredible people like uh, one of my more recent favorites is uh, Andy McKee mm. um, who, who's a little more on the finger style side of things or then you have people like um, uh, Callum Graham or uh, Khaki King or some of these that are that would lean a little more percussive and um, and all sorts of different uh, avenues uh, in between, and people who are very, very much in that that I wouldn't consider like traditional fingerstyle players um, that I've seen, and you know things will pop up on your, you know, uh, social media feeds, and you, because you've liked this, you might mm-hmm. like this, and so you you can get little glimpses of that once you're in that world. So uh, after that, did you? What point did you decide to go to college? Well, I was uh, I was actually interested in. Um, going to Full Sail, uh, because I was going to, if you're familiar with Full Sail, uh, it's like a recording engineering focused school, or it has some other uh, pieces to it down in Florida. And I was planning to go there after high school. And I had a friend that was going to be going to Lebanon Valley. And at some point during our senior years, we kind of switched. Mm. Um, I ended up actually taking a year off before I went to school and was working and trying to make sure I really wanted to do it. But um, I think I, I cared more about performance and that sort of thing. Um, but I didn't want to just be a music performance major and I didn't want to just be a recording engineer. So Lebanon Valley at the time, um, was a very high end music program in the area and I felt comfortable going there and, and had a, had a good recording program. I think it's improved over, over time. Um, as you would hope it does. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but even then it was, it was solid and uh, they allowed me to kind of do both. And because I knew I was going to be performing anyway, I could kind of focus on something else in that world and uh, have a few things that I was pretty comfortable with to kind of build a career off of, which is what I ended up doing. So, so tell me how you started building that career. Well, um, 
I, I my career, I think I can break down into four four areas. I have the education piece, um, teaching and that sort of thing. I have the performing piece. I have the engineering piece, and then I have the church work piece. Mm-hmm. So, um, the education was um, almost immediate. I started. Uh, just teaching lessons for a local, now defunct music store in uh, Lancaster, and ended up um, doing pretty well within a short amount of time. And they had another store up um, outside of Reading, so I ended up splitting my time between both stores, and you know went from like two kids to seven kids to twenty kids to thirty four wow. kids, and then um, and then somewhere in that early going. I had been there, I think, less than a year, and I got a call from Albright, and they said, would you come in, and, and uh, we need you to take over this, this program. So, um, and, you know, I was going in there at 23 or however old I was and had students my age, and that was, right. uh, like, intimidating in that environment until I got settled. Uh, but that was a huge part of, of where it went. And I would say in those four areas, it has changed quite a bit. It's kind of undulated over time, which one is the, is like my priority and which one is secondary and, and, and so on. Um, so at the time, education was a big deal. I did start playing for victory at that point as well. That was very, very early on. Um, and then that ended up building into something over time, but initially it was a, it was a smaller piece. The recording piece, I had a small recording, um, live recording company with a buddy from college um and i was doing some performing at that point and then as it started to build the education piece kind of became the main thing for me for a number of years and excuse me then i got into uh i'm trying to remember what what would have been next but I was still playing on and off for some different bands and, and getting to do some of the things I listed there as, you know, playing conferences and teaching some master classes and getting pulled into some backing bands for things and um, did a little bit of touring with, uh, with a group. And, um, and then at some point, uh, I was pulled in to do some sort of subbing at a theater my memory's kind of foggy on what it even was at that point, um, but it it kind of seemed like that was that would be a good extension of what I was doing. Ended up getting the opportunity to uh, to then work at American Music Theater in uh, 2010, and that kind of started that whole theater angle of my performance. While the other things didn't go away, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and so then AMT's uh, well certainly during certain times of the year pretty full on, lots and lots of shows every week. So I had to back off some of my teaching and change some some other things I was doing. And it's that was kind of the first time I had really shifted uh, out of education being the primary thing I did into, uh, into more performance. And then it's kind of, you know, vacillated over, over time. So I'm curious, within your education realm, what is it like to set up a master class, to uh, organize a master class, to uh, set curriculum, I guess, for a master class? Sure. Um, well, a lot of times you're being brought in by someone who has some idea of what they want you to do. Uh, so, for uh, but there, but there are so many different 
ways that we can talk about that, and we kind of use that term generically, and I'm using it generically here. Um, sometimes you can have, uh, you know, an equipment company. Like years ago, I did a clinic for Ibanez guitars, and um, there you're basically trying to sell their gear. So mm -hmm. they want you to perform cool things, whatever it is that you're doing, and then kind of demonstrate how great the equipment is that you're using, um, as opposed to like when I, I was in here uh, a few years ago, actually uh, multiple times uh, to do things with the Worship Link conferences that were happening on, on campus at LBC. And those, it's a little more specific. It's saying, hey, as a electric guitar player in a um, worship band environment, how do you approach this or this or this? And sometimes it's talking about equipment. Like, oh, we need to talk about, as electric guitar players, we use lots of sounds. How do we approach, you know, effects pedals or processors or that sort of thing? Um, or is it about playing? And I think as, as a master class um, uh, kind of like evolves in that short amount of time, because it is short, and you get used to doing them, you learn to leave a lot of stuff out and try to just go after a handful of things because it's there's just no way people are going to yeah. retain enough. So you're just trying to get a couple ideas across and, and really get them to grab it. Um, and that comes with doing it and, and some maturity and learning, oh, I tried to fit you know, 37 things into this hour and it, it didn't work at all, you of know, course, right. so yeah. let's, let's try, let's try doing five and see if three of them stick, you know. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, what was it like to teach uh, several guitar students at a time? Uh, how did you approach that? What was, what was that like? Do you have any advice for guitar teachers that have that number of students or? Yeah, if you're teaching a group, I think it depends in the context or on the context. Uh, certainly, if you can get them to be quiet for long enough that you can talk to them, that's always good. Guitar players are notorious for noodling when they're bored, right? Uh, and and that can be uh, difficult to get things across. So even though it's good for them to hold an instrument while you're talking through ideas, it can also kind of take over the room pretty quickly. Uh, but I think the main thing is, and this is a general teaching uh, thing that you learn, and actually one of the things I would say was such a big benefit of teaching, is you have to start to learn to tell uh, people new ways of thinking about something that you don't personally need, because you mm -hmm. understand this concept, but they don't. Um, and a lot of times you'll, you'll present something one way or, or a handful of ways and you can tell they're not getting it and you have to come up with something new and um, a, a new way of saying old information is what I'm, what right. I'm trying to get at. And so um, that will change you as a player too because as you start to do that, it's uh, different ideas sink in and you can kind of, uh, build off of that in a new way that you wouldn't have done if you weren't forced to do it because we're creatures of habit. If I already know how to do something, I'm going to probably uh, keep doing it that way until I'm forced out of that box. And teaching is a good way of doing that. So in a context where you have many people, I think you're, you're trying to do that in, a, in kind of a generic enough way that you give the most chance for information to get through to people knowing that you probably can't follow up very much. Mm. You know, you can ask for questions, but 
questions in those environments oftentimes are, are more trouble than they're worth. It can, it can kind of get to be a mess, um, I know from experience. So I would say just presenting one idea and saying, here's a way to think about it. Here's another way to think about it. Here's another way to think about it. And trying to connect dots for people. And then uh, sometimes you can just look out in a room and kind of see the light bulbs going off. And you know you're making a connection with enough people that you're giving it a chance to make it to everyone. So I think that's pretty important. When did you realize that you could also teach in addition to performing? Um, well, I was... I didn't have any desire to teach, if I'm honest, oh, yeah. uh, when I was younger. And I didn't think I'd be good at it because I, I wasn't particularly patient and was uh, told, I, I think probably the first person to tell me that was my dad. And he said, oh, yeah, you could teach. And I wasn't understanding what he was seeing. You know, it's, it's like one thing to be, you know, smart or articulate or something, but you have to be able to connect with a student and... Uh, to, to be an effective teacher. And there's different ways of doing that. Um, I certainly have my way, and I wouldn't say it's the only way of doing it at all. But um, I think being comfortable not always having a uh, direct answer, or sometimes a good answer, sometimes even a, you know, a functional answer, and having to figure it out in that moment and saying, oh, I don't know, let's try to figure it out together you know or mm -hmm. I will go back and look at some things and try to come back and have an answer for you next week or whatever um, that does fit my personality so I think some of those things I was able to kind of build off of but yeah teaching was literally a well I should do something while I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do for work I'll teach some guitar lessons and then it just kind of mushroom cloud and that was it that's awesome. So yeah, kind of strange, strange way to get in. Tell me, tell me the different uh, going into your theater and uh, performance uh, areas of your life. I'm curious, what was it like to perform in musical theater as opposed to regular, you know, run of the day gigs? Well, um, that's a good question. I would say theater is uh, most of the time pretty distinct. You will have certain theater shows and certain setups that feel a little more band e. Uh, but even something like I'm doing right now, this is Jersey Boys show, so it's all uh, music of uh, Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons. So it's it's a particular era of rock and pop music that there are certain styles. Um, the guitarists doing specific things in that era for most artists, and they were they were certainly among those that kind of popularized certain things. Um, but it's still. Uh, a pit show and it, it specifically in this one like I'm down in a pit it's a covered pit I can't see my music director who's on stage so I'm watching on a video camera oh yeah. and so yeah it's just completely different so it's not it doesn't feel like you're in a band and connected with people I'm connected to my sheet music watching a conductor tell me when to do certain things and kind of hoping it just works out somehow by the time it hits the ears of people in the seats. You know? It's much more digital than uh, organic, maybe. Um, yeah, there's, it's a, it is just a different sort of thing. You, you do have places where you have more wiggle room, but uh, the whole thing with theater is generally like you have notes on the page that you're trying you to, play. to play. And some shows, 
um, they will, there's, there's an expression they'll say like, uh, you know, respect the ink, like play mm -hmm. what's there. And then there are other times where, and this is a big thing for guitar players, most of our music isn't written by guitarists, it's written by pianists. And pianists have I ideas and they have sounds in their head but because they don't play the instrument, sometimes it's really hard to articulate or they won't understand. One of the classic things in any orchestration is understanding the instrument you're writing for. Yes. And knowing that, oh, well, this voicing of a chord is physically impossible on the guitar. Like <laughs> I have a handful of those in this show where I see what they are asking for and realize that it was not vetted by someone who was a player. Um, and this show has been around now for a number of years. It was very popular on Broadway. It did a, a few national tours. And the sheet music wasn't fully fixed because the guitar players playing it at the end are doing exactly what I'm doing, which is looking at it and going, what did they want to write? And then we just do that. And we're, we get used to that. If I played clarinet, that's probably a lot less likely because what's, what's written, assuming I can physically play the note, that's being asked for, which is occasionally a problem, but um, <laughs> if it goes out of the range of your instrument, but uh, assuming you can, it's pretty much you play what's on the page. Um, there are occasions, certainly, again, as guitar players, we are the most likely candidates to take the big solo in the, you know, bows music or, or whatever that's happening. So sometimes there they just say, hey, just go go for it for 16 bars or, or whatever it is. And there's a, there's one of those in this show. Um, and that's a little less typical for other instruments. But most of the time, it's scripted out. And you have to kind of feel that out, which highlights the one thing that uh, guitar players are notorious for being terrible at, which is reading music. And, uh, you know, the joke about how do you get a guitar player to turn down, put some sheet music in front of them, is probably um, accurate for a reason. Um, and I've had to kind of like chip my way um, at, at improving in that um, music reading area because that definitely was a weakness for me. It was a weakness for me when I was playing other instruments. Mm. Uh, it's not specific to guitar. Um, and so it's still the weakest thing I do. And that's actually part of the reason theater is good for me because it's a challenge. I can, uh, um, you know go into an environment where I'm doing the thing I'm probably the worst at with people who are, that is their best thing. Right. You know, and so it's kind of, it's a little bit of, um, you know, forced humility when, when you go in and you're playing with, you know, very high level players. And I've been very fortunate and Lancaster in general is fortunate with the quality of theater that's available here and the quality of some of these players. They are just Incredible. ringers. And and play on Broadway and and off Broadway and are back and forth and I have a bunch of friends that have done that, um, both as actors and musicians and so we we really are fortunate and I would say the Fulton um, in general has extremely um, good players and so and it's different players depending on the show I played uh, Man of La Mancha a month and a half ago or whenever that was completely different show mm -hmm. so like flamenco ish. You have a completely different band um, asking different things of you. And then, you know, we go into this other show and most of the band is different. Except for like the drummer and I and, and one of the reed players, I think. And 
Um, and being able to kind of hang in those environments is the, uh, is the work. Um, so yeah, it's a, that I would say is a push for me to do theater because it's, it is a challenge, you know? And it's, I've never, you, you say, uh, piano people not understanding how guitar works and I've had that struggle, <laughs> um, yeah, of course. writing, writing for guitar. I, I'm, I've never actually seen a, a guitar sheet music. Now that I'm thinking about it. It's most of the time something that looks okay for piano will be okay for guitar, except with things like strumming rhythms. Of course. And it just depends how important particular rhythms are. Um, so we get, uh, if it's a stylistic thing that's somewhat known, they won't be specific, and they'll just put slashes and kind of go, hey, you figure it out. You're supposed to be the professional, which most of us prefer because oh, sure. then, we, you know, then we go, okay, I can kind of make this my own. When there are particular hits and certain rhythms that you have to play, it's more of a, uh, of a rhythm chart than writing out full um, uh, voicings and everything for all of those chords. Um, that generally works out better, too. Uh, but there are times where it needs to be really specific and, and uh, you know, you've got to work that out. Uh, most of the time you're not having to sight read things. You've got a little time to prep. Of course, and, right. And so um, you can kind of figure out what it is you're trying to do and what they were asking you to do. And, yeah, it's a, I've actually had some conversations with a couple different um, music directors and uh, transcribers and folks asking specific uh, questions about guitar for theater saying how would you prefer this written mm -hmm. and having to go I don't know no one's ever asked me that before and, and say what would I actually like to read or what's the most functional so yeah that's a whole that's a whole other thing but definitely an important thing because it's always sharing information you know right. and how can you articulate information so writing something in a way that uh, someone that's reading it can process it easier is uh, the way you get your idea across better. It's not just for their sake. It's for the, for the sake of the, yeah, of the final product. It's all about the final product. Um, but also in theater, uh, I think you have to be able to get a sense of your music director, a sense of your, um, if there's any sort of a tech director or something, and knowing what they're looking for and also being willing to ask. And I think when I first started playing, I was trying to be invisible. So no one said, Hey, what happened there? Um, if you make a mistake or something. And now I'm, I'm the opposite where I ask a lot of questions. I say, this says this here, that doesn't make a ton of sense to me. Is that what you actually want? Or would you be okay if I do this other thing? And generally speaking, that improves your product pretty quickly. Um, and I would assume if you've done composition, you would have had some times like that. You present a project and, and people say, could I do this instead? And, and then you kind of figure out how to, how to articulate those ideas. Oh, absolutely. When I had to work on a string piece I wrote uh, called Quartet Chaos, it, uh, chaos isn't a name because I wanted, to, wanted it to be chaotic. Uh, and so trying to figure out what is capable of strings because I want to do double stop slides and all that like stuff that isn't conventional, especially for classically trained musicians like they do here. Uh, so having to go through that and learn, um, okay, this fingering is impossible. It's better to do things in fourths rather than fifths, actually. 
for strings because it's tuned in force. Yeah. Duh. You, you would think that would be a light bulb in your head, but no, I mean, you don't think about that. So uh, that's really interesting that um, you you have to adapt to whatever uh, they give you, and you have to figure out, okay, is this physically possible, or am I going to have to change a little bit for whatever sacrifice? Yeah, and, and one of the other things that has become more common with guitar is having uh, to cover multiple different instruments in a show. Right. Uh, that was always, you know, really common concept. They would call it doubling when you're when you're playing like a reed. If I'm playing saxophone and clarinet and uh, flute in a show, which a lot of them do. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's um, that was pretty common, and a lot of the folks doing that are also teaching. They're pretty comfortable with those things. It's not a big deal. As guitar players, um, you know, now it's become a really commonplace thing in, in a lot of shows to be asked for different types of instruments. Sometimes it's, oh, we want a 12-string guitar, or we need a classical, and then we need a steel-string acoustic. Oh, here this is a mandolin. Here this is... Um, tune down a half step so that you can play this and there's layers of things so the jersey boys show just as an example is meant to have two guitar players and i think there's six or seven instruments and there's one of me i'm playing a combined book some of the instrument changes you can't even make in time so we had to had to figure out how to make that functional uh and so i end up playing a um it's called a very axe that allows me to um, have some virtual sound. So I play a virtual 12 string. I play a virtual electric sitar in the show. I have some other things that um, I'm able to do because it's all on a single instrument and it's not the best sounding thing I've ever used, but for the convenience of theater where I say I have four measures of electric sitar and then I'm immediately back into electric guitar. I couldn't do that with just one of me. Um, even even if I had both instruments. So this enables me to make some of those changes. And you start figuring out um, ways of giving, uh, you know, your, again, your, your writers, but also your music directors. Most of the time, you're not dealing with the writer um, or orchestrator of a show. You're dealing with the music director who's interpreting it. Mm-hmm. Um, occasionally, you do deal with the writers, and that's actually significantly higher stress. But uh, because generally speaking, they have very specific ideas, and a lot of times they're slightly wrong, and it's <laughs> you have to kind of like figure out: do I die on this hill, or do I just kind of say sure and and like do what they're asking poorly because you can't right. can't physically do it. So uh, figuring those things out is is part of the gig as well. But um, but because of that, it's become much more common for me to jump into something, and it, and they say, hey. There's a mandolin part in the show, so we need you to bring a mandolin. Or, or um, there's banjo in the show. Can mm. you bring a banjo? And um, if you have something like like that guitar I was referring to earlier, you can do a you know a pseudo version of that if it works well enough. And if you don't, you have to go out and source some of these instruments, or say I can't do that. And does that affect me doing the gig? And so you're incentivized to learn. Uh, and, and expand your your horizons and your music collections. And I've got, 
you know, a small army of instruments now that I've, I've been doing this for a while. So, uh, you know, aside from just guitars, it's a whole pile of other things. And, um, which as a musician first, rather than a guitarist first, I love that because it allows mm-hmm. me to do things that are more interesting, but, um, it also has some perks for, for professional work. So what do you think is your coolest instrument that you've played so far? Ooh, well, it's, it's easy to to say the oud just because um, and and you mentioned it earlier that I, I'm playing that regularly because it's so non-Western. Um, so, for folks who don't know, um, an oud would be kind of the granddaddy of the lute, which would be like the granddaddy of the guitar, but. Uh, an oud is, as opposed to a lute, which is fretted in some way, an, an oud is always fretless um, and generally has uh, two strings, in, two uh, unison strings in sets. Um, and there's some different ways that they can be tuned and set up, but oftentimes it's either five, five string sets or six string sets. Um, so I play one that's six, and I, I generally use an Arabic, more of an Arabic tuning but it's an extremely old instrument, and yeah. ver- versions of ouds are some of the oldest string instruments on the planet. Probably aside from um, harps that you know had had a static string there, but something that's tunable, um, you'll sometimes see them called other things. You'll see it called uh, barbat, which is uh, again, it's a it's a regional thing all throughout uh, Middle East, and it was in Spain, it's in Egypt, it's in Turkey, it's. Um, um, all through Iran and and, and uh, yeah, all the Mesopotamian areas, it's uh, there's something very even to hear a modern instrument like that, it sounds old. There's something deep about it. Yeah. Well, I got into that thinking, of course, I'm a guitar player. It's guitar-ish. I'm gonna figure that out. I had already been experimenting with microtonal guitars, and I had gotten into fretless guitars. Um, so it was kind of the natural progression uh, for me, but I wanted one that I could gig and play with bands, and ouds are bowlback instruments that are difficult to mic or amplify, generally speaking, uh, because of how they're made. And uh, I didn't want to buy spend many thousands of dollars for a higher-end oud that I didn't know how to use and fight with it uh, to start, so I ended up getting a uh, an acoustic electric one, a uh, company Godin, uh, which is a, a French French Canadian guitar company makes a, a couple different versions of some of these non standard instruments, and one of them is is a an oud, that's an uh, electric acoustic thing, um, and that I was able to pick up one of those, and that became my main instrument uh, up to this point. I do have an acoustic oud as well, but uh, we'll probably be getting a better one at some point just because there is something about the acoustic nature of it. But the the electric one um, sustains a little longer. You can do other things with it. I've kind of created my own version of something with that. A lot of times, uh, again, with, with oud playing, you're getting uh, people playing what they would call a toxim, which is... Um, essentially an improvised chunk of music, uh, most, uh, you know, melodically driven, um, that doesn't necessarily have 
a, like a specific rhythm behind it or anything like that. And it's meant to be a little more contemplative. It can go very long. Um, and it's around certain tonalities. They would kind of choose a tonality. Um, we could say a scale. It's not, mm. they don't view them in the right. same way. But, um, but for Western musicians, we would think scalarly and, and kind of improvise from that. Because I was getting into that, but coming from a guitar background and having something that sustains a little longer, I kind of fashioned my own version of playing that. And uh, I've been interested in uh, uh, Indian, uh, Southern Carnatic Indian music for a long, long time. Got into to uh, you know the vocal percussion. If you've ever heard those guys do that, the conical, yeah. um, was always fascinated with that. Um, and I like sitar, but I, I preferred sarod, which is uh, more a little more guitar-ish. And this is kind of somewhere in the middle of all that. So the way I generally play oud now is I'll, I'll have some sort of a drone that I play over, which is not super traditional. Really? Um, not, not in the uh, Arabic community. You're, you're, oh, often, okay. gotcha. you're often playing in other ways. It is in the Indian community. But right. they're not playing ouds, and so I'm I'm trying to kind of blend my own influences as a uh, as a tall white guy from Virginia playing, <laughs> right. playing an Arabic instrument, very old instrument made by uh, French Canadians. It's just the weirdest combination of things, but but it's awesome, and it's also why um, I I really respect the traditional stuff, and I will enjoy listening to it. But I would not consider myself a traditional player at all at, in any respect. And it's freeing when you just kind of get to do what you want. Yeah. Uh, occasionally, I've played with other Udas, and, and you try to meet them where they are a little more, and they're probably doing that with me too. Uh, but at least it, it allows for um, some kind of natural cross-pollination in, in a way that is its own thing. It's unique mm -hmm. and, and musically fulfilling. So it's not a hand-cranked thing. No. Okay. No. So uh, the hand crank thing, you're probably thinking hurdy gurdy. Hurdy gurdy, um, yeah. Which is which is going to lean more violin ish in some respects because yeah. of of how you're you're creating the um, the note and then uh, and then making it vibrate. So oud is is uh, generally played with a pick style. Uh, they call it uh, risha, um, and. It, it's very guitar-ish, but it's definitely not guitar-ish. Guitar, right, and, and, and so it's, it, you get some of this overlap, but um, it's its own thing, and you have to think in a different way. Even though I'm not playing it in a traditional sense, you think very differently. And, man, if you've never, if you've been a guitar player and you've never played a fretless instrument, you know, you, like go to a, go to a, a children's uh, orchestra concert to know how bad you know frets would be needed at something like of that course. is just cacophonous and you start thinking about making chords with that on a guitar and it's really difficult so um figuring out how to kind of nuance that instrument and the other part of it is of course in other uh music systems that aren't Western, they're not using just our same 12 notes. A lot of, of times they're using yeah. microtones, they're, um, you know, quarter steps and, and different things. And, well, when you play this macam, which is kind of a scale fragment, when you play it up, it's this thing. And when you play it down, it's this other thing. And 
Um, we don't have too much like that in Western music at this point. No, the only one um, I would think would be blues with like the neutral thirds that we'd use. That that is that is definitely uh, a thing. Although there's not a uh, prescribed rule. I no, think when it's... I'm when I think classical music, the the one would be um, melodic minor, where from a classical perspective you go up one way and come down, down yeah, another yeah. way. Um, that's the closest we have, but. Um, really in modern use of that most people throw that out of course anyway. yeah especially in like you know as a jazz player we often will call that jazz minor and and not um not care what direction the notes are going um and it's just something that we've uh, figured out ways of building off of so it's definitely a different perspective and if you're trying to sound in any way authentic like i'm if i'm playing and people aren't looking at me how obvious is it going to be that i am <laughs> i am a large white dude and not a smaller brown fellow and i'm trying to you know do it justice make right. it make it sound like real music and um and i've started figuring out some of that over time and and i think i'm to a point now where i'm not I wouldn't be embarrassed to play in front of some some pretty serious players because I've gotten a chance to play with some uh, already, and um, that's kind of that that next tier, you know. That's awesome. I've always wanted to play the sitar. It's an incredibly cool sounding instrument. We have a very good sitar player in Central PA. Um, I'll give a shout out, John Protopappas. Um, if you're not familiar with John, he is. Uh, very serious sitar player, studied in India for, for a number of years, uh, years ago. And uh, that's a whole different ball game. That's actually, that's actually one I have only experimented with a little bit. And uh, I like listening to other people play it. it. It's not grabbed me enough where I went out and bought one, but um, one of these days probably. So I'm curious, how, do, how does one get into the niche of playing an oud or uh, these other instruments and then uh, scoop it up and bring it to to the professional work? Oh, yeah. Um, I think you just have to be either um, brazen or foolish. Um, <laughs> uh, I was just inspired because I liked the sounds and um, and just wanted to kind of dig into it. Actually, what specifically kind of pushed me over the edge is there's a flamenco guitar player um amir john haddad that was uh, one of my favorites that also plays oud and has kind of a mixed world music band uh, called zoo bazaar and uh he was playing an electric oud on a particular song that i had heard of theirs pretty early um that i wanted to learn how to play and so that was that was actually one of the first things I ever played when I bought this thing. And it, it was a little over my head, but being a professional guitar player, I can jump a few steps in some areas. And having played fretless guitar, um, I was way further ahead in some of that than um, someone who hasn't done that would be. Uh, but it's still, it was, it was a rough go there for a little while. But once I started getting comfortable with that, the intent was to use it in my own music and have some some uh, world music group, which I have done versions of over over the years, but not had a long running 
uh, group of any sort, at least thus far. Um, but when I got hired at St. James, uh, part of the discussion was they were getting more into some contemplative things, which is interesting for Episcopal Church, which is high church. Um, and I didn't have any experience in that world prior to that. What does high church um, mean? Um, so th- think Catholic, um, Catholic church-ish or, or Greek Orthodox, where um, it's a lot of ceremony, a lot of liturgy and pomp and... and gotcha. The high altars and the outfits and the and and everything that's part of their tradition, um, and and I came out of very much the the other end of the spectrum, very right, much low church, um, so um, that was a little bit new. But but uh, they were also pretty forward thinking, and have wanted to get into some meditation things and and contemplative things. And music is such a good bridge for that. Uh, mm-hmm. for most people um, and and actually sometimes the only way they'll dip their toes in it at all and so um, I was fortunate to um, have an outlet kind of built in for me and I didn't play it right away it took a little while and then eventually I I was willing to start playing for a small meditation group and we kind of built out of that and now I'm regularly playing for the the Compline service just a little bit at the top to kind of set the mood in the room, and the Compline service is uh, uh, its own thing. Um, it's it's what they would consider a daily office, so it could happen every day, and it does in like Church of England, uh, some places. But St James has been doing something on First Fridays because there's a lot of stuff going on downtown Lancaster on a First mm-hmm. Friday. Um, they started doing this. It's um, it's always 9 p.m. Um, First Friday, where it's a choral uh, Compline, unaccompanied. Um, occasionally, there's some other elements in it, but a lot of times it's it is just a unaccompanied choral thing. Low lighting, they put their torches up and the fire pits up and whatever, and so it was a natural kind of uh, connection to bring the oud in there. Um, but I've also started experimenting with um, uh, a handpan and uh, yeah. and a. Uh, uh, a rav, rav vast, um, uh, similar like a tongue drum style instrument for the same reasons because they, it's a very different approach to the same basic idea, which is you're setting a mood and it's kind of this open ended thing um, that has a contemplative aspect to it. That sounds really cool. I have to check that out yeah. uh, on next first Friday is next week, isn't it? Yes, and yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's an open door thing. St. James is on the corner of uh, Duke and Orange Streets downtown, so it's a lot of foot traffic through that area, and the doors are open. Come on in. That's awesome. So where do we even go from here? I, I just want to talk more <laughs> world music because I love yeah, I, I love the aspects of world of world music. Uh, you, do you know? Have you ever heard of Sandeep Das? Oh sure. Yeah, the taba player. He came. Mm-hmm. He came over and performed at the trust a, a number of years ago, and uh, it was so incredible just to see how the tablas work, and they speak in that uh, percussive language to describe the ways of the tabla, mm-hmm. which is it's it, it's weird. It's in such the coolest way. Well, one of the things that uh, I was fortunate to be exposed to pretty early on was some of the um, counting and phrasing systems in that conical. Um, vein, which actually there's now some sort of, I'm not very familiar with it, but some of my uh, uh, 
like traditional school educator friends would know um, that the, it's, uh, some of these counting systems have started to kind of trickle into Western uh, teaching, but it's yeah. you're using different sounds and syllables for counting, like uh, taka, takita, takademe, that sort of thing, and like stringing them together in different ways. And I'm grossly simplifying it here. It's oh, significantly course. more complicated, but um, but there's an art to it and a flow to it that is really interesting. And one of my favorite guitar players is John McLaughlin, old, old English fellow who's um, been playing in East meets West style bands for a long time. He was one of the first ones that, um, you know, pushed that. Uh, John started one of his biggest things early on was he was playing with Miles Davis. And so mm. he, was, he, he was kind of in that jazz world, fairly well known. Um, and then at some point started his own kind of eclectic fusion band, which was the Mahavishnu Orchestra, which is, uh, was one of my favorites, um, years ago. And then he also started this other project with some Indian musicians called Shakti. And Shakti is kind of, I don't think it was the first one of those bands, but it was the first one I had ever heard. And there are now a number of different versions of that, but that stuff can get a little noodly and a little ridiculous, but when it's done well, it is some of my favorite stuff. And so that was my introduction to um, the interplay of how a guitar could play with a tabla drum and, you know, make real music and not just sound like two dudes playing right. at the same time. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, when, yeah, when Sandeep Das came over, he was playing with uh, Mike Block. Have you ever heard of him? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was playing with the cello, and I was, mm -hmm. and it was insane how well that they meshed these two instruments from completely different worlds uh culturally and musically yeah it, I, th I think a lot of those percussionists um indian percussionists are extremely good musicians oh, and they so are good. very very aware of what's happening around them and so they can kind of move almost instantaneously with another instrument so if you then have another you know good high level player it can blend in a way that's really incredible so going back to teaching or uh, theater and um, other things, you started to uh, work at the James Episcopal and yeah. Victory Church. Tell mm -hmm. me what that was like. Well, Victory um, was, uh, I had a friend that was playing there years ago, and I was fresh out of school, and I got a call like, hey, we need a guitar player. Will you come and play? And when you're a young musician, as you know, and probably everybody who's been on this podcast before <laughs> me would say, you wave a dollar in a musician's face and they're going to be there. So um, I was uh, I was happy to jump into something. And I had grew, uh, grown up in, in uh, church world and had played at other places, but this was the first time I, it was, it was like full band sort of thing. Um, and... At the time, it was a much smaller uh, church, you know, two hundred some people or whatever. When I was hired in, and um, grew uh, more than ten times that over the course of the the time I was there, um, and uh, I ended up leaving um, in August, I believe, of of twenty twenty, um, and but had already been overlapping with St. James because they had been doing these. Uh, you know, artist masses. They used to call them jazz masses when they would 
jazz up the hymns from Sunday morning and they would play them on Saturday evening for kind of a special service. And it grew into some other things and they started incorporating pop and rock music um, as a, a, I'm sure, a community-based thing uh, to to give people another option. Um, but also uh, being able to kind of dig into the depth of some material that you wouldn't normally look at that way Mm -hmm. and you will have a chunk of people maybe even some listening now that would find that to be uh, somehow disrespectful or even blasphemous and I would just say that um, that's unfortunate to me that you can't find that depth in other things or think it doesn't belong in in a church environment I think there's a there's a lot of room for those sorts of things. And so um, I had been pulled in to play there as a sub, and then I ended up taking it over in, in 2017. But uh, we've we've kind of done a wide breadth of things with that. So, and you, you got to think about it. By the time that those were written, that was the contemporary way of, of writing stuff. So in, to adapt it makes total sense. I'm sure that those writers would have adapted it to today as well. It, just because something was, was made way back when doesn't mean it's holy or sacred in, in of itself. Well, you know, I, I kind of joke about that uh, sometimes with uh, when you get traditional music people who talk about the organ in the church. And I say, um, the Ood's been playing religious music for your religion longer than the organ has by a few thousand years. So uh, we're always, I think... Uh, there's a danger of being so kind of compartmentalized and narrow focused that we don't realize how big a lot of this really is. Um, and I think that's a, that's been a, a real benefit of uh, some of these kind of like pushing at the edges of traditionalism um, where you say there's, there's some, some depth and, and value in so many things and, and we need to, allow for that for people to find that value where they where they will and and not try to tell them what's supposed to be a value maybe right and it's and it's a way to open the door to a broader audience imagine the people who wouldn't have heard hymns if chris tomlin didn't you know redo them or you know stuff like that a psalm is still a psalm no matter if it was sung by david or sung by hillsong worship you know what I mean? Yeah, and there are there are plenty of um, you know to use the this expression sacred cows in that world where we go well we don't do this with this thing and um, though I understand those things um, I'm the wrong guy to make that happen right I'm going to be the guy that's going like I don't know I think we should do this other thing that's completely outside of that um, and. And yeah, again, finding value in some of it. When you're talking secular music, you know, if you go, well, we'll listen to Chris Tomlin, but um, don't play that Bob Dylan song in here, mm. or don't, or or whoever. Insert artists here. Um, and that's one thing I've really appreciated about St. James is we've been allowed to push the envelope a little bit, be a little dangerous at times um, with some of the subject matter and things that are. You don't know how people are going to take it and, and if they find value in it, but also wanting to um, be authentic in that way. And um, yeah, so it's been a great outlet. Uh, we had actually 
like most things, um, shut that part down during pandemic. And we had done some pre-recorded things. Um, we did a YouTube thing or YouTuberist as we were calling it. And, um, there were a couple other things we had done like that. There was a Louis Armstrong thing earlier on. Um, and, uh, we are relaunching here in September, a little different thing. It used to be a weekly thing. It's going to go to monthly, at least for initially. Um, but, you know, starting off with the Beatles and saying, well, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of good Beatles material. Most people would say they are somewhat of a Beatles fan. I think there are some mm-hmm. that won't, but, um, uh, to try to kind of like ease our way back in, but also say, this is one of the things we do that is just nobody else around here is doing. We value it. We're going to do it at the level we can do it, but, um, but try to do it well and yeah. in a way that, that, um, people can connect with. And that glorifies God. God can use, uh, it doesn't have to be specifically a worship song in order for God to use it. God can use music in all sorts of ways, no, uh, no matter what. We we put a lot of parameters on uh, what's okay and what's oh, not course, okay. Yeah. And uh, I think anytime you do that, you get in the way of someone else's uh, genuine experience. Journey, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, what is uh, one thing that you have... Well, how can I think of this? <laughs> what what is what is uh one particular? Can you give me an example of of a song that you guys used that uh pushed the boundaries a little bit? And how did you use it? In what way? Oh, uh, that's a good question. Um, so we have done some uh Leonard Cohen material in the past, and I remember there was one that had some sort of a. Uh, a rape theme incorporated in and that's just like right unheard of to play in that sort of environment but when we were doing it uh and i don't remember the specifics this was a number of years ago but um it allows a platform for uh, you know clergy is making a decision about how to address those things and going up and talking about it and you know we we kind of make the joke that saturday is this more dangerous thing where we can talk about that stuff and Sunday morning you can scamper back to what you're used to kind of of deal. Um, And I think that's of value, but it's also saying there are plenty of people that wouldn't be comfortable in a church otherwise. And um, if, if being willing to talk about that, there's a, another ongoing kind of series that we've done off and on about addiction and recovery Mm -hmm. and supporting 12 step programs and, um, St. James has a long history of that. And so we would do these masses talking about addiction. And some of these songs are, are um, you know, not fun songs. Uh, right. And just being willing to kind of dig into that, talking about loss, talking about um, death uh, in in a way where we're not, you know, kind of shielding our eyes. We're willing to really go there. Right, because as Christians, we have to deal with these issues. The they're going to come no matter what. Uh, you can't just shy away from some of the deeper, darker topics of the world because it's a part of the world and it's going to affect you. The, the world won't uh, magically change because you're uncomfortable. So, exactly. Yeah. And that's where the real ministry happens is in those deeper, darker spaces where people are struggling if, and where people really need help. 
for sure when you and Lancaster City is um kind of a, a real mixed bag at this point because it's the city has um certainly I've been around Lancaster for a long time now and it's really um improved in some areas uh certainly there's lots of things going on now that there didn't used to be still still small city very small city right but um but nice restaurants nice uh nice venues in town some nicer places um to to just walk around downtown uh but also uh, a mix of things with uh pretty rampant um you know drug issues downtown that have been there for years and uh pre-pandemic uh, there was a there was a rash of i remember that it was uh the synthetic one of the synthetic marijuana strains that was really nasty and we were seeing people on our street all the time you know mm-hmm. that would be out we're just a couple buildings down from the library and and I'm walking downtown and you're seeing these people who are obviously strung out some of them non-functional getting into your <laughs> the churchyard you know when I'm coming in to bring in my equipment and there's someone sprawled out in front of the door it's like those are real things you know mm-hmm. that's the that's really where the city it, it was and is. And so when you're seeing some of that stuff, um, it makes sense to say, well, we could try to ignore this, but that's not going to do any good. Do any good. Um, if we can acknowledge the fact that addiction is not only real, but it's... It's, uh, it's not taboo. Yeah, and, and really at epidemic levels for certain things at this point. Um, and, you know, have have some sort of focused thing where we acknowledge that in a outside of a 12 step program right but also outside of a traditional sunday morning environment something that folks who wouldn't be comfortable in one or the other it's kind of a middle ground so um that's something that i'm proud to be a part of with with St. James because it's it's a community it's something we we can give to the community without necessarily expecting anything directly back, you know. That's awesome. Well, we're kind of running out of radio time, so I'm going to play a song that I wrote 2 years ago uh during the pandemic and this kind of it kind of relates a little bit uh where everything shut down, things were looking uh, bad <laughs> to put it lightly. And uh I just realized that when when everything on the world goes away, there's only one thing that remains and that's truly God. With all that said, this is You Remain By Me. I lied. That was not You Remain By Me. This is You Remain By Me. When I am weak Can no longer speak You are there Right beside me When all hope is lost And I can't bear the cost You are there Paying it for me And when things turn to dust And there's nothing to trust You are there Honest to me Oh, it's clear who you're meant to be You are 
was my song you remain you can find that on any streaming platforms but for chris what what are some upcoming stuff we mentioned the first friday that's happening what else have you got going on well um still got a about a week and a half of jersey boy shows and then uh, fulton has a little bit of a break and then we're back to start the next season uh mid-september i believe the first show is kinky boots um which is the show that was cut um, when the uh, pandemic yeah, first right. hit. So we were into our second week, I think, and showed up and they said, well, you're playing tonight and then take your stuff home kind of thing. Mm. Um, so getting another chance at that show. So that, that'll be September, October. Um, uh, September 10th, I think, is the first of the um, upcoming Saturday masses. That's at Beatles 1. Um, then we have an interesting one in October, which is... Uh, Ryan Kaufman, local sax players, bringing a group in to do a John Coltrane-specific mass. And then we're, cool. we're doing a Crosby, Stills, and Nash one in November. And so it's we've already got some of those uh, booked out, and then there will be uh, another slate of them coming in uh, the late winter into the spring. Um, 
And then uh, I'm playing when I can. I've been uh, doing a little bit of gigging with uh, The Interruption, which is a local like R&B funk band. Um, play jazz occasionally, restaurant gigs, that sort of thing, when I can fit it in. And uh, we'll be starting up semesters here at uh, LBC and at F&M uh, late oh, August. And yeah. so, yeah, if you're if you're in Lancaster, greater Lancaster area, walking around for long enough, I will bump into you somewhere. Right, of course. <laughs> uh, with all that said, uh, is there a website for the St. Uh, James? Yeah, every everything for uh, St. James uh uh, different programs and things would be on their main website, which is uh, stjameslancaster.org. Um, of course, the, the Fulton shows, uh, that is, I believe, thefulton.org. Yeah, um, that sounds right. And, uh, yeah, and the colleges should be easy to find. Um, but, yeah, the there's a social media presence with St. James stuff. Um, as well so that can be found on facebook and and instagram i believe and stuff on youtube um from that's both uh, current and some of the things that we tracked over the pandemic there's some interesting stuff on there as well cool with, with all that said i hope you guys have enjoyed this episode if you want to stay tuned in for tomorrow we have Kristen brewer the uh, one of the composers and writers for sight and sound theaters so I'm really excited to talk about that, how she got there, and about her scene collective. Well, if you want to follow us, please be sure to check us out on on all streaming platforms. You can search this story, Corey Rosen, that's C-O-R-Y-R-O-S-E-N. And if you want to be up to date with all of our events and guests upcoming, check out our Instagram or Facebook. Uh, at Instagram, we are at the underscore story underscore podcast or facebook.com forward slash the story Corey Rosen. If you really want to support us, please be sure to check out the shop. We have stickers and shirts with the logo on the front and the first 50 guests on the back. And with all that said, I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day. See you guys later. Bye. <laughs>